Good morning. All right, welcome to Calvary Chapel Yukuni. Great to be here with you guys. We will be continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke this morning. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I uh, do want to encourage you to reach down, borrow one of the Bibles underneath some of the chairs around you. We do think it's important that you follow along in the Word, that you read God's Word for yourselves. Okay, last week we began our study of chapter 7 by taking a look at a study that I entitled, A Marvelous Military Man. And uh, we looked at the account of one Roman centurion, and we noted his incredible faith in Jesus to heal his servant that was laid out in his deathbed in agonizing pain, uh, unable to even move. The centurion asked the Jewish elders to send for Jesus. Uh, but before Jesus could even get to his house, he sent word saying that he was uh, not worthy for Jesus to enter into his house and that he himself was not even worthy to enter into the presence of Jesus. And he simply, he sent a group of friends proclaiming to Jesus that if Jesus would just say the word, he knew that his servant would be made better, that he would be healed and, and made whole again. Jesus was, was blown away. He marveled, we're told, uh, at the faith of this Roman Gentile centurion. And he proclaimed, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And we're told that the centurion servant was healed uh, in that very instance. Well, our study this morning is going to pick up from there. As Luke continues his gospel narrative, our text is going to be Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. And the title of our study together is going to be Nuggets from Nain. Okay, Nuggets from Nain. We're going to just go through and uh, make a number of observations of our text. And so if you are one that likes to take notes, to write things down, I forewarn you, there are a number of them, so get your hand ready. Um, so, Will you all please rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word? I'm going to read our text in its entirety and then pray. We're going to ask for God's favor upon us as we dive into His Word. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different version, do your best to follow along. Okay, Luke continues his account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ with the following in verse 11. Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. We're going to stop there. That's our text for this morning. Let's pray and ask God just to lead in and guide us through it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are here with us this morning, Lord, and that your spirit is uh, living inside each of us, Lord. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to just come and to uh, rule and reign in this place, to lead and guide us into your word and through your word. We thank you that uh, your scriptures tell us and teach us that your spirit 
will lead us into all truth. And so, Lord, I just pray that we would be led by your Spirit this morning. Lord, that we would be sensitive to all that your Spirit desires for us to hear. And, Lord, that we will have leave this place having heard from you, having spent time with you, having allowed your Word to penetrate our hearts, to mold and shape us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. So our text here uh, begins with a simple time marker in the few, first few verses, 11 and 12, that lets us know that the event in our text took place the day after what we just covered last week in the opening of chapter 7. Now, depending upon what translation you're reading, uh, your text may say that it happened soon afterwards. Uh, the literal translation of the Greek is that it happened on the next but it doesn't give the actual word for day. So it could mean that it just kind of happened next. This is what happened kind of in succession, or it could be saying on the very next day. Um, Whether it was soon after or the very next day isn't that important, but I do believe what is important is that we understand that this took place right after the incredible healing of the centurion servant. Why is this important? Okay, let me explain. Because I think it helps us understand the overall excitement, the overall energy behind the group of people that are following Jesus at this time. You see, our text tells us that Jesus journeyed to a city called Nain and that he was accompanied by many of his disciples and a large crowd. Now, the city of Nain was about 20 or so miles southwest of the city of Capernaum, where we were at last week in the beginning of chapter 7. It is about a day's journey. And though we're not specifically told, we can imagine the excitement, the enthusiasm, and the overall anticipation that this crowd most likely is feeling. Jesus had just miraculously healed a man that was laid out on his deathbed simply by speaking forth the word. And so I have little doubt that this large crowd that's traveling with Jesus is expecting to see or to hear of even more incredible things. Okay? They're wanting to see and, and to witness even more miracles. Jesus' popularity, it was still rising at this time, and people were following him with great excitement and with great anticipation. There's no doubt in my mind that they were following after him, hoping and waiting to see what will Jesus do next, you know, with great anticipation. Now, in a very stark contrast, as Jesus and the large multitude with him was entering into the city gates, there they were met with a separate large crowd from the city making their way outside of the city gates. Now, this second large crowd heading outside the city was a large funeral procession. We're told that this funeral procession was carrying a dead man who happened to be the only son of a widow. It was typical in those days for Jewish funerals to involve the entire community. Okay? It was a very loud and a very emotional event. Usually there were even uh, hired uh, professional mourners that would walk the streets wailing and lamenting the death and calling upon people to join them as they headed outside of the city gates to the cemetery, to the place where the bodies would typically be buried outside of the city walls. 
Now, the contrast is even greater than just these two crowds. Because at the front of the funeral procession was a dead man, an only son, that was destined to live again. As we've already read, Jesus will bring him back to life. And of course, Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, was leading the other group. He was alive, yet destined to die. He is the Lamb that's slain before the very foundation of the world, as Revelation speaks of. His purpose in life was to live a sinless life and then to selflessly, sacrificially lay that life down for us, going to the cross and paying the penalty for our sins. And so, we have God the Father's only Son destined to die, encountering a widow's only Son that was destined to live. And we have one large crowd filled with joy and excitement entering the city, encountering a separate large crowd headed outside the city to a place of death. And I see here a spiritual picture that I think we must recognize and take note of. It's the first nugget, if you will, that we're going to pull out here. Spiritually speaking, you and I and every living being, we are part of one of these two crowds. You see, one crowd is being led by Jesus and they are destined to enter into the city. And spiritually speaking, those who follow Jesus, those who put their faith and hope in Him as Lord and Savior, they are destined to arrive in a city whose builder and maker is God. Because God has prepared a city for us, according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16. Revelation chapter 21 describes this city. It's a great city. It's the holy Jerusalem that descends out of heaven from God. This city has 12 pearly gates and streets of pure gold. It has no need for the sun or moon because the glory of God illuminates it. For the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is its light. The other crowd's destination is outside the city, outside of God's heavenly home. They are headed to death and eternal separation from God in a place of darkness where there will be weeping and wailing. The scriptures also add that there will be gnashing of teeth, a place the Bible calls hell. And so spiritually speaking, those who who do not surrender their life to Jesus, they are dead in their trespasses and sin, and they have no hope of entering into the city of God. John chapter 3, verse 36 states, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You and I are represented spiritually by one of these two crowds. Make sure that you are part of the crowd that's being led by Jesus and destined to spend eternity in the city that God has prepared for those who place their hope and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because listen to me, okay, with all sincerity, okay, you do not want to be part of that other crowd. You do not want to be part of that crowd that is destined for a place of weeping and wailing, a place of eternal separation and death and destruction. No no matter what uh, people may say, hell is not some cool party, uh, rave type event where everyone's just living it up. That is not hell. It is a place of utter darkness and death 
and you do not want to be part of that crowd. Well, let's continue on in our text to see what other nuggets we can find. Jump down to verse 13. It says, When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. We're going to stop right there. Three things stand out here in this one verse regarding Jesus and his actions towards this widow. First of all, we note that Jesus saw her. Okay, the word in the Greek translated as saw, it means more than simply seeing something or noticing something. It doesn't just mean that Jesus saw her, uh, you know, just as he would see anything or everything else. Okay? No, this word means more than that. It, it actually carries with it the idea of perception, of seeing and knowing. This was much more than a casual glance from Jesus towards this widow. He saw her. And she drew his attention, his focus. He saw her and he perceived what she was going through. Here she was, a a widow having already lost her husband and now was faced with the loss of her one and only son. You see, in her day and age, women primarily worked from home and they trusted upon the men in the family to go out and to earn a wage. What was she to do? She had no family. She had no husband, no son now to care for her, to provide for her. Here she was surrounded by a large crowd of people and yet most likely feeling all alone, abandoned and without hope. And Jesus saw her and he perceived and he knew what she was going through. The pain she was feeling the hopelessness of her situation. Listen, we too can go through difficult seasons. We too go through tough times where we too are hurting, perhaps even feeling all alone, feeling abandoned or without hope. Listen up, church family. God sees what you are going through. Jesus sees, okay, and He knows what we are feeling and what we're going through. The God that we worship, He is the God who sees. El Roy, as Hagar declared there in Genesis chapter 16, verse 13, after she was treated harshly by Sarai and fled from her presence. There she was, lost and lonely in the wilderness, and the Lord saw her and approached her and ministered to her, encouraging her to return and promising her that he would multiply her descendants exceedingly. The Lord sees us. He knows our situations. He knows our circumstances, and he desires to minister to us in and through those situations. There is nothing that is beyond the sight of the Lord. He sees and he knows all. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 3 declares, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Psalm 34 verse 15 states, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cries. Psalm 33 verse 13 affirms, The Lord looks from heaven, he sees all the sons of men. Hebrews 4.13 teaches us that that there is no creature hidden from his sight, but that all things, okay, they are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Brother and sister and the Lord, be assured of this very thing. God sees. He sees 
and he knows all that you're dealing with, and he wants to minister to you. Well, I said there was three things I wanted to note about this verse. The first was that Jesus saw this widow. The second is that Jesus had compassion on her. This word compassion is only found 12 times in the New Testament. It speaks of being deeply moved, okay? The root word actually speaks of the bowels, okay? For it was believed during that day uh, and age that the bowels were thought to be the seat of emotions like love and, and pity. And so if you spoke about something that greatly impacted you, you would speak about how it moved you to your bowels. Um, word to the wise husbands out there, don't talk about your love for your wife by your bowel movements, okay? That's an old way of doing things. We don't do that this way anymore, okay? Today we identify the heart, okay, as the seat of these same emotions, okay? We may say that our heart aches, for someone, okay? Or we love someone from the bottom of our hearts. Well, back in the day, they didn't use the heart, but the bowels to speak of these sorts of feelings. And so, interestingly enough, of the 12 times that this word is used, nine of them describe the feeling that Jesus had upon others. The other three uses of this word were actually found in parables taught by Jesus, referencing the kind of love that God has for us. And so, every instance that this word is used it is in connection to jesus and his love for us the love of god okay jesus not only saw her and perceived her situation but he was moved with compassion towards her his heart yearned for her to minister to her to comfort her you know compassion has been described in this way described as your pain in my heart okay your pain in my heart. Compassion feels the pain of others and is moved to action. One of the parables that Jesus taught and used this word in was the parable of the Good Samaritan. You guys are probably very familiar with that parable. You guys know the the details of that account. A certain Jewish man fell among thieves. He was stripped of his clothing. He was wounded. He was left for dead. A priest came by, saw the man, but passed on the other side. Likewise, a Levite came and looked, but he was unaffected by the plight of this poor man, and he too passed along on the other side. Then came a Samaritan. He came and he saw the man. The Greek word is actually the same one that's used here in describing how Jesus saw this widow, and he had compassion towards the man. He felt this man's pain in his own heart and was willing to do something about it. He bandaged his wounds. He set him on his animal. He brought him to the inn and he took care of him. And when Jesus concluded this parable, he asked, which of the three was a neighbor to this man who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer that he was speaking with properly answered. And he said, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus declared, go and do likewise. Jesus has modeled for us how we are to have compassion upon others. To allow ourselves to feel the hurt of others and allow it to move us to action. Jesus saw this woman. He felt her pain and he was led to do something about it, which leads me to the third thing I want to note about this verse. Thirdly, we see that Jesus spoke to her his word. 
He said to her, do not weep. Okay, Jesus, he sought to comfort her through his spoken word. You know, in saying, do not weep, Jesus wasn't being harsh or, or cruel or unsympathetic, okay, but comforting and consoling. Okay, he was basically telling her, don't cry. Okay? It's going to be okay. I've seen you. I know what you're going through, and I have compassion upon you. I feel your pain. I feel your hurt, and I'm going to do something about it. Don't cry. God comforts us as well through His Word. Psalm 119, verse 50 states, This is my comfort and my affliction, for your Word has given me life. A couple of verses later, the psalmist writes, I remembered your judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. Paul actually tells us that the scriptures were written for our comfort, that we might have hope in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. And so my encouragement, my exhortation to you, church family, is to get into the word. Okay? Allow the word of God to comfort you, to remind you of the hope that we have in Jesus. 2 Corinthians states, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. No matter what we are going through, we can be assured that God sees, that He knows, that He has compassion on us, and that He desires to speak to us words of comfort and to act on our behalf to bring comfort and peace into our lives. Why? Why does God promise to comfort us in all our tribulations and all of our heartaches and all of our pains? Well, Paul tells us why in the rest of verse 4 in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. There he writes how God comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts us that we may comfort others who go through and experience the same sort of tribulations that we've gone through. You see, God doesn't waste any of our hurts. He does not waste any of our pains. He uses them to comfort us, that we may in turn comfort others with the same comfort with which God comforted us. And most of the time, church family, let me just tell you, you'll find that the comfort God uses most of all comes straight from his word the word of god is comforting so get into it and allow it to minister to your soul let's continue in our count read with me the first part of verse 14 as we make note of another little nugget here from Nain. verse 14 says then he came and touched the open coffin and those who carried him stood still we'll stop right there I want to pause really quick here just to make a simple observation. As the two crowds met, Jesus saw this widow, was moved with compassion, was willing to do something that would cause him to become ceremonially unclean. For when Jesus came to the open coffin, we're told that he touched it. And again, the weight of this word is stronger in the Greek. This wasn't just a casual brush up against the coffin okay, type of a touch. The word means to fasten oneself to to adhere to or to cling to. Jesus grabbed hold of this coffin, okay, and causing those carrying the coffin to stop dead in their tracks, okay? Listen, 
when we are going through tough times, Jesus wants to grab hold of us as well. To touch us. To hold us tight and let us know that it's going to be all right. He touches our lives, grabbing a hold of us and never letting go, comforting us and meeting us right where we are at. Well, by touching this coffin, Jesus made himself ceremonially unclean. The scriptures state that anyone that touches a dead body would be ceremonially unclean for seven days, according to Numbers chapter 19, verse 11. But listen, Jesus wasn't afraid to reach out and touch dead things. He wasn't afraid of becoming unclean. He was willing to get his hands dirty if that meant ministering to someone and touching the life of someone. You know, I want to tell you something that's the truth. Maybe some of you know this, maybe some of you don't. I've um, been involved in ministry for almost 20 years now. And I can tell you that ministry can sometimes get messy. Okay? Helping out others who are struggling, who are in need, who are hurting, it can get dirty sometimes. Okay? And you and I... Okay, are, are we willing to get our hands dirty ministering to the needs of those who are hurting? Ministering to the needs of those who are struggling, those who are going through great difficulties in their lives. Are we willing to reach out our hands and touch the lives of the unclean around us? My hope and, and, and my prayer is that we would follow Jesus' example here, that we would be willing to get our hands a little dirty that we may minister to the needs of those around us. Well, let's continue with the rest of verse 14 and verse 15. Verse 14 continues. It says, And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. Jesus spoke directly to this dead man, and he declared, Young man, I say to you, arise. Here Jesus demonstrates how he has power and authority over death. In the Gospel of John, John records the following words of Jesus. Jesus said, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus demonstrated this by raising the dead to life, and he proved it once and for all by raising himself from the dead after his very own crucifixion. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know something that's interesting? That word arise is actually written in the imperative mood. And I find that interesting because Jesus is speaking to a dead body And yet he speaks with the imperative mood. The imperative is a command. Jesus is commanding this dead body to rise up. And it reminds me of that truth that Jesus never commands us to do something that he won't give us the power to do. Remember that God doesn't call the enabled, but he enables the called. We can be confident that whatever God asks of us or whatever God commands of us, that he in like manner will give us the ability to accomplish the task and see through, see it through to completion. Jesus commanded this young man to rise from the dead and he gave him the ability to do so. Amazing. 
Verse 15 tells us that he who was dead sat up and began to speak and that Jesus presented him to his mother. Here we see for the very first time in Luke's gospel, Jesus raises someone from the dead. Okay? Of course, this isn't the only time Jesus would do so, where we will read in the next chapter of Luke's gospel about the raising of Jairus' daughter back to life, chapter, Luke chapter 8. And much later on from now, Lord willing, when we get to the book of John, we will read about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And while this may be the first mention of Jesus raising someone from the dead, we also know that it isn't the first time something like this has happened. Some of the Old Testament prophets were used to raise people from the dead. In a very striking, strikingly similar account, we read of in uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, we're told of how Elijah the prophet raised a poor widow's son back to life. And the prophet Elisha also raised the poor Shunammite woman's son back to life as well in 2 Kings chapter 4. And so the ability to raise from the dead is something God has demonstrated throughout the scriptures. Yet interestingly enough, we're told that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That word fallen asleep, it's a euphemism for those who have died. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. Why is Jesus referred to as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, but yet we have several previous accounts of God using prophets and even Jesus himself raising people from the dead? That's a good question. Okay? Glad you guys asked. Okay? Um, the answer really is quite simple. Jesus is the first to be resurrected from the dead, never again to see or taste death. Okay? All the people in the Bible that were ever raised from the dead okay, eventually tasted death a second time. Okay? Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those who will be risen from the dead, never to see or experience death ever again. And Jesus' resurrection, it is unto eternal life. And this is what those who have placed their hope and faith in Jesus have to look forward to. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we too have the same assurance that we will rise from the dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 declares, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. And so, Jesus, the first fruits of those being resurrected to eternal life. We see in this man raised to life a picture. This man is a picture of you and me. A picture of what our life was like before we came to Christ. And a picture of what God has done in us and through us. Paul describes what we were like prior to Christ. With great accuracy. In Ephesians, he writes, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just, just as the others. You see, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were that dead body in the coffin, being escorted outside the city, headed to nothing but death and darkness and lamenting and wailing. 
We conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. We fulfilled the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath. But that all changed when the grace of God was poured out upon us. Paul continues in Ephesians with this. He says, but God. And I think how wonderful those, those two words are. Okay? As he describes what we were like before. And then he says, but God. Okay? But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, just like this young man in our text, God was rich in mercy toward us, not because he deserved it and not because we deserved it, okay? It was all a matter of God's great love being demonstrated towards us through Christ. God's exceedingly rich grace was showered upon us and life and salvation was granted toward us how awesome the Lord is, okay? We were all once this dead man, but as the grace of God worked in us and through us, we too were given new life in Christ. Praise God. Amen? Praise God for His mercy, for His love, and His grace. For without them, we'd still be that dead man. Headed outside the city with nothing but death and darkness ahead of us. Let's wrap up our study by looking at our final two verses. Read with me verses 16 and 17 as we discover a few more nuggets before we close. Verse 16 says, Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his, visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Here in these two verses, we see the results that came about after this young man was brought back to life. There are five things that Luke mentions as taking place. We're going to note them, uh, and we're going to do so carefully, but somewhat quickly. Number one, we see that fear came upon all. People from both crowds, all who were there, all who were witness of this incredible miracle were struck with great fear. Now, this doesn't mean that they were all of a sudden afraid of Jesus like he was, you know, the boogeyman or, or something bad like that. Okay, no, that's not what this word means. Okay, it doesn't mean that at all. It means um, that this idea of fear is actually speaking of a reverential awe. Okay, it, it is a, a feeling of, of profound respect and, and honor for the Lord. You know, in, in today's day and age, I believe we sometimes can lack this sense of, of awe and reverence towards the Lord. I kind of refer to him as, oh yeah, he's the, the man upstairs, or yeah, you know, Jesus is my homeboy kind of a thing. I, that used to be really popular back in the day. Um, we, we, we need to keep hold of that, that fear of the Lord, okay? That reverential awe. We lack a healthy dose of the fear of God, and it is something that we desperately need, okay? We need to have a healthy fear of God. The Bible teaches us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. We have a lot of foolish people today who lack true knowledge all because they lack a healthy fear of the Lord. 
They don't hold the Lord in great honor. They don't respect and revere Him in their life. May we be reminded of what the writer of Hebrews tells us, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He is God, and we are not. (laughs) Not even close. Recognizing this huge difference helps keep us sober-minded. It helps keep us humble and yielded to the Lord. It is a very good thing, a very needed thing in our lives. A healthy dose of the fear of God. Number two, we see that they not only feared God, but they also glorified God as well. When God shows up and He does a great work in our lives, our response ought to be that we glorify God. To glorify God speaks of rendering glory to Him, recognizing Him for who and what He is. It's to celebrate Him with praises, with worship, with adoration and our very lives. Psalms 96 proclaims, For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. We glorify God in the the songs that we sing and the worship that we give, the praise that we offer, but we also glorify him through our lives. 1 Corinthians teaches us that we have been bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And that whether or we eat or drink, whatever we may do, we are to do it all to the glory of God, according to 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. He also said, Jesus to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So God is to be glorified in our praise, in our worship, in our adoration, but He's also to be glorified in the way that we live our lives, that in everything He would receive the glory and the honor that is due His name. Number three. We see that the group there in Nain recognized Jesus as a great prophet that had risen among them. Now, I understand why these people would say this. Jesus' act of uh, raising the widow's son probably would have reminded them of the Old Testament accounts of Elijah and Elisha that we already mentioned. In fact, the ministries of these two prophets actually took place in and around the same region Uh, that we're reading of here, this uh, city of Nain, in that same region of Galilee, okay? The ministries, uh, and so people would be familiar with those guys. They kind of would be like, hey, this is where Elijah did this, and this is where Elisha, you know, raised the Shunammite woman, and this is where Elijah raised the the widow's son. And so I, I understand their conclusion, okay? But I wonder, I wonder how the Lord felt when he heard them declare him as a prophet. Even a great one. They did say he was a a great prophet. Yes, Jesus was a prophet, but he was so much more than a prophet. 
And properly identifying Jesus is one of the most important things that we can do. Who is Jesus? Was he just some man that lived 2,000 years ago and went around doing some nice things and saying some nice words? Was he simply a good teacher, a morally upright spiritual leader? Was he a prophet sent by God? Or was he more than that? You see, there are all sorts of different beliefs, religious beliefs out there about Jesus. The Mormons, they believe that Jesus is a spirit child of God and the spirit brother of Lucifer. The Jehovah's Witness, they believe that Jesus is the archangel Michael in bodily form. The Muslims, they believe that Jesus was a prophet of God and that he was born of a virgin, but they deny his deity. The Hindus believe that Jesus was a spiritual avatar of God. Buddhists believe that Jesus lived previous lives where he reached high states of enlightenment because of Buddhist practices. You see, there are all sorts of different ideas about who Jesus is. To say that Jesus was a prophet was correct, but it was also sorely incomplete because he was so much more. Jesus is God in the flesh. 100% God, 100% man. He is Lord and Savior of all mankind, and only those who recognize him as such will receive the grace of God that leads to salvation. Make sure that you know and understand who Jesus is, for what you believe about Jesus will impact your eternal destiny. Number four. We see that the people attested God has visited his people. How true this statement was, and yet I don't think they understood the magnitude of their response. This isn't the first time we've come across this kind of response about God visiting his people in our study of the book of Luke. You may recall that back in chapter 1, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Okay, this Zacharias said, uh, said this after his mouth was open, after having been visited by an angel while serving in the temple. People would use this phrase to speak of God, sending a special word through a special agent of some kind. And so when the people here proclaim God has visited his people, they aren't necessarily identifying Jesus as God in the flesh but more as a messenger or as an agent of the Lord, one sent on behalf of the Lord. God had indeed visited his people, and he was standing right in front of them all. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And listen, just as God came and visited his people some 2,000 years ago, he promises to come again and visit us a second time. Currently, he is in heaven preparing a place for us. Jesus promises in John chapter 14 that if he goes uh, and prepares a place for us, that he will come again and receive us to himself, that where he is, there we may be also. Jesus is coming back again. He will visit his people. And the question I think we must ask ourselves is whether or not we are ready for him to return. My hope is that we can all say yes Yea, that we are all ready for Jesus to come and visit his people once again. Number five, 
And finally, we see and note the final response to this miracle. We see that this report about Jesus spread throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Word traveled quickly about the incredible miracles Jesus had performed and being able to raise someone from the dead. That's kind of a big deal, okay? Uh, And so word spread fast, okay? And went down through Judea, all throughout Judea and all throughout the region. And this would actually lead to more difficulties as the religious leaders take more and more notice of Jesus and hear more and more about this man everyone's talking about out in Galilee. It's going to bring some unwanted attention from the religious elite, that's for sure. But as I thought about this, effect that came about because of the man being raised from the dead it made me think of us it made me think of us and how willing we are to spread the word about the lord and how he has raised us from the dead and how he offers to others the same life-giving message of hope and reconciliation to the lord by grace through faith you see we are just like this man We once were dead in our trespasses and sin. We've been made alive. And how many people are we telling that story to? How many people are we sharing our life uh, and our testimony about what God has done in our lives with? Are we bold in sharing our faith? Are we all about spreading the message of Jesus Christ and His gospel to the world around us? Are we not ashamed of the gospel of Christ? For we know and we recognize that it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes as described in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Behold, Romans 10, verse 15 declares, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. May we all have within us a desire and, and not just a desire, okay, church family, I mean, we have a desire and a sense of urgency to get this message out while we still have time to do so, because Jesus Christ is coming back. And once he does, there will be no more opportunities to share the gospel message. That window, that time will have passed. And as I contemplate the, the reactions and the responses that came as a result of this young man being brought back to life, I can't help but believe God would have uh, just something here for us, something for us to glean. That we too would have a holy and reverential fear of God. That we would glorify God for all that He's done in our lives. That we would properly identify Jesus, not just as a prophet, but as God in the flesh, our Lord and Savior. That we would be ready for Jesus to come visit us again. And that we would be willing and desiring to spread the message of the gospel to all those around us until that day comes. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank you that your word does comfort us. Lord, we thank you that you are the God who sees. Lord, you see, you know, you perceive all of our situations, Lord, and you have compassion upon us, Lord. You saw us dead in our trespasses and sin, Lord, and you showered upon us your grace. Lord, we praise you. We thank you, Lord. We worship you for your grace, Lord. We glorify you, Lord, that you... We're willing, Lord, 
to send your one and only Son, destined to die for our sins. Lord, we thank you that we once were that dead man headed straight for nothing but weeping and wailing and darkness and death, but God, you showed up and you did an amazing thing by your amazing grace. You saved us. You brought us new life. And Lord, I pray that we would use that life to honor and glorify you and to bring as many as possible with us to that heavenly city you are preparing for us. Lord, we love you. We give you ourselves. We give you our lives. And we ask that you would strengthen us by your Spirit. Lord, that we might boldly proclaim the works that you've done in our hearts and lives. Once we were dead, now we are alive. All praise and all glory belong to you. And we share that with the world around us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.